12, and uh, we're going to look at most of the chapter, just covering it very quickly, but from verse 3 especially. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, and so on through to the end of the chapter. Sometimes it's beneficial to uh, take an overview of a passage, although my own personal preference, uh, especially in the New Testament, is to break it down into smaller sections, something what we're doing in Philippians on the Lord's Day. But it does uh, actually help to take the whole passage and get an overview of it, get the uh, the, the whole panorama, if you like, of, of the teaching in it, like we are in this passage itself, although there are many things in it, of course, as you know, that we could stop over and spend a lot more time on. Now, you can see uh, uh, that the, the way it begins, the chapter begins with a reference, especially to the mind, uh, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then he goes on, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And again, as you see so often in Paul, uh, his emphasis on the mind is so significant. The mind, in many ways, the way that rationally in our souls as people who are, uh, and, uh, who are given uh, the spirit of God to enable us to discern things properly, the mind is in many ways the controlling feature of our life. What is true of the mind is true of the person by and large. As Romans 8 puts it, the fleshly mind, the carnal mind, is enmity against God. But the spiritual mind, the mind of the spirit, is life and peace. They're very much opposites. They're very much uh, in contest with each other. The carnal mind, the spiritual mind, they're complete opposites. And when you come to have that mind, the mind of the spirit, uh, through uh, your being born again, well, that mind is then uh, the operating control room, if you like, of your soul through the way that God gives you more and more to understand truth. And that emphasis at the beginning of the chapter on the mind follows through into the, the, the remaining part of the chapter. The correct attitude or approach from the mind follows through into the actions that are mentioned in the chapter as it goes on. So it's really a passage about attitude and action. The attitude of the right mind, the mind that's transformed uh, by the, the mind that's renewed uh, under the spirit of God's blessing, um, that renewed mind is then lead, lead, leads directly to these actions that are set out in most of what follows in the chapter. And they're always connected. Where you have a renewed mind, you have corresponding actions in that Christian life, as the mind is, uh, is uh, enlightened by the Spirit of God and the truth of God, that leads on to a certain type of lifestyle, certain type of practice in every aspect of life as we seek uh, for ourselves daily. So let's look at three things briefly. First of all, in verses 3 to 8, you have a correct attitude and action in the individual sense in which we as individuals, as individual Christians, are called upon to have this kind of attitude and the action that follows on from that. 
And then in verses 9 to 16, that correct attitude and action is something that's emphasized in our relationships one with another as Christians. And then to finish off in verses 16 to 21, he speaks about that right attitude and action towards the opponents that you face as Christians, those in the world that don't share your priorities or your lifestyle, your way of life, and particularly those of them that are actively hostile. Well, here is one passage that gives us direction as to how to face that and how to deal with that. And you'll find that verses 16 to 21 especially. So let's just briefly go over these. First of all, at verse 3, uh, I, I say to you by the grace given to me, he said, not to think of himself more highly. Every one of you, so he's, he's talking here to, to individuals, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He's talking here about sober judgment. And sober judgment um, doesn't uh, primarily have to do with, with, with alcohol, with drugs, although that obviously can come into it as well. The mind as it's clouded by such things obviously isn't in a proper state to have that attitude towards itself, towards ourselves or others. But that's not what he's talking about primarily. Uh, thinking sober judgment really is thinking in a measured way, in a way that actually approaches things from the point of view of God's truth and the way it leads us into how we should think about all things. And uh, it's a two-sided thing. He's saying, first of all, uh, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. He's saying that to each of them. So it's saying that to each of us tonight, we're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. That's one side of it. But there's another side to it as well, uh, because having sober judgment or measured judgment means you don't think less of yourself than you ought to think. It is actually dishonoring to God to actually think less of yourself than what God has made you to be. And there were sometimes we, we try and, uh, uh, of course, humility is signally important in the Christian life, and it's emphasized throughout the Bible as an important aspect or characteristic of God's people. But um, sometimes we set out to try to be humble um, by um, not really being prepared to acknowledge positively what God has done in our life or what we may have, by his grace, been able to achieve. But that would be wrong as well, because we have to look at what God has done for us, what God has done in us, what has God gifted us with in order to serve the church. And our tendency is to think very low of that and not really emphasize it. Now, in that sense, that's good. But if it's, uh, if it's to the extent of really not presenting what God has done clearly and uh, thankfully, then that is dishonoring to God. We must never uh, set out in any way to uh, obscure or to uh, try and keep uh, too low a profile of what God has done in our lives. So think with sober judgment, he's saying. And for all of us tonight, whatever age we're at, whatever um, contribution we have or haven't made yet, thinking sober judgment is think of myself, you're saying to yourself, think of myself, not, not uh, highly uh, as, I, uh, as I ought to think. Don't think of yourself too highly, more highly than you ought to think. On the other hand, ask yourself, am I using the gifts God has given me? Do I have sober judgment? Am I prepared to accept that God has given me certain abilities through which I can serve him, through which I can serve his church, serve this congregation? 
So there's one thing, it's the correct attitude and, uh, and action. But then he says, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, that doesn't mean primarily, it uh, doesn't mean different amounts or levels of faith. It uh, doesn't mean, for example, one person have strong faith, another person having a much uh, uh, less than that in terms of their faith or their assurance or whatever. What this is dealing with is actually the particular gifts that God has assigned to his people. And that very much comes into relationships, and how we actually follow through uh, with uh, the attitude we have to ourselves and to others. And what he's saying is, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, uh, primarily saying the application of faith using the different gifts that God has given to his people. That's what we actually bring forward as we think of the measure of faith. Not how much faith do I have compared to somebody else as far as believing is concerned, but being prepared to ask myself, where has God given me certain abilities or gifts without thinking of myself more highly than I ought to think, and yet not less either? but it's according to the measure of faith, the amount or the measure, the way in which, if you like, God has apportioned or portioned out the various gifts that exist within his believing people. Because then he goes on to speak about the body of Christ, for it's all connected together, of course, the way he's arguing here, for as in one body we have many members, and members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now he's saying, think with sober judgment. Think positively. Think of yourself not more highly than you ought to think, but don't think less than you ought to think. But it's according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, looking at whatever gifts they may be and asking God to help you to discern them because you exist within the body. You exist within that one spiritual body of Christ, his church in this world. That's where the gifts are to be used. And that's where the apportioning of, by God of these gifts actually comes to be used. Um, and notice he's saying members one of another. Now, this, of course, is a, uh, an illustration that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, looking at the, the spiritual body of Christ, the spiritual membership of the body of Christ. Um, uh, in the way that uh, these other passages do, they lift the gifts of grace that he gives to the various people that are his. Well, he's saying here, uh, in the imagery of the body, he's adding here that we are one body in Christ, but individually members one of another. Now, what does he mean by that? It's a bit of a, a strange phrase, and you don't find it in the other passages that I've mentioned there. Well, for one thing, it certainly means that we actually need one another. We are members one of another. My membership of the body of Christ does not exist separately from yours. Your membership as an individual of the body of Christ, your place in the body and the gifts that God has given you, does not exist in isolation from the rest of the body, from the other members of that body. In other words, we're members one of another, so that we are out, we, we are we are set out in, in a way that needs one another, that supports one another, that looks out for one another, that seeks to comfort when we need comfort one another, that seeks to teach when we need teaching, that seeks sometimes uh, even to rebuke when it's necessary. 
as part of the development and progress of God's people and of the truth in our own practice of it. So he's saying, this is what it is. Each person, individually, members of the body of Christ, think of yourselves not more highly than you ought to think, but not less either, because God has gifted you the measure of faith, the measure of gifting that he has given to you. That's what you need to use. And you use it within the overall body that functions according to the grace that's given. And then he mentions the various uh, uh, the various types of of um, activity there, according to the grace that's given, as prophecy, serving, teaching, and so on. He's, he, he lists a few there, just to show what he's actually about in terms of the body functioning together, and being members one of another. And it really is important in the world in which we live um, that this is what we present to the world. Uh, it's not just for that reason that we are members one of another, but nevertheless, that's what the world sees. And what the world sees must be that we actually are members one of another in the sense of showing the world that we do need each other, that we value each other. That is our privilege and our blessing to have that relationship with one another, to form the body of Christ and to exercise our gifts in relation to the well-being of the body, but of each person with whom we have this wonderful spiritual connection and contact in the body of Christ. So it's a correct attitude and action for us as individuals. Then verses 8 to 16, you have a correct attitude and action in regard to one another. Well, of course, there's an overlap with, with what I've said already, what's in the previous uh, verses we've just mentioned. But notice in verse 9, let love be uh, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. And as often with Paul, love comes to the fore. And in many ways, as he begins this part of the passage with an emphasis on love, so that carries through into everything else that he's saying here, in terms whether it's a re rejoicing or patience or contributing to the needs of the saints, to show hospitality, to bless those who persecute and rejoice with those who rejoice, all of that. We'll just mention them in a minute, very briefly. But that's what he's beginning with. The love that he mentions here in verse 9 is the love that carries through into all of these other activities. They are all aspects of love as it works through in the practice of Christians. And he gives that priority to love, as you can see in the next chapter uh, and right through into the following chapters as well, uh, where uh, obviously love comes to the fore and what he's saying and some of that as well. But he gives us then some of these elements of love in the verses down to verse 16. I'm not going to go through these in detail, but let's just uh, look at them as they go along. They're just they're not a complete list by any means. It's a sample list, you might say, he's giving us. But even then, as a sample, there are about a dozen or so things here, uh, which we actually have to, to look at in, in passing just now. But let's look at it. Let love, uh, he says here, but let love be genuine. Now, that word literally is, let love be unhypocritical. Because the genuineness or sincerity of the love of Christians is the exact opposite of hypocrisy. 
It's uh, something that is based itself on the truth of God, on the truth of God in Christ and in the scriptures. And so that exercise of love, this is it connected, you see, to the mind. The renewed mind is the mind that loves. And the renewed mind as the mind that loves is the, lo is the mind that loves sincerely. It's the, it's the mind that abhors uh, insincerity, that abhors hypocrisy, uh, that doesn't want to present things in a pretended kind of way or in an imagined kind of way. It's not presenting an outer, uh, an outer skin of love, if you like, in our practice without it having a really genuine heart. Let love be sincere. Let it be unhypocritical. Let it be genuine. And sometimes that means when love needs to rebuke, when love needs to pass comment lovingly on something that's out of place, either in another Christian's life or even in the life of the world, it's your love for the truth, it's your love for God that brings you to speak about that or against that, but you do it lovingly and you do it in such a way that your love is sincere. It's unhypocritical. You're not taking that up to make a name for yourself. You're not taking that up in anything other than out of concern for the honor and glory of God. Let love be sincere. Let it be unhypocritical. And that's a big challenge in itself. We could spend uh, the rest of the night looking at the sincerity of love and the way that, God, that uh, Paul speaks about it in other uh, in, in that respect, in other passages as well, but let's leave it there. He then goes on to uh, speak about uh, holding fast, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. In other words, have a discerning mind, a discerning attitude, and that discernment that leads to action. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And throughout this passage, it's wonderful the way that the apostle puts opposites together. We'll see that at the end of the passage as well. And these two things obviously go together uh, as opposites. In other words, to abhor what is evil, you need at the same time, even more so, to hold fast to what is good. How are you going to abhor evil? Well, it's by holding fast to what is good. The one outdoes the other. If you hold fast to what is evil, uh, then you're going to have something against what is good. That's really how it works. But for the Christian, for the mind that's been renewed, for the mind that wants to honor Christ, this is what he's saying. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, it's translated here. And you can see immediately that that really, that that is a, is a family word. It takes you into the idea of, of family love and family relations and family concerns. That's what we are as a body of Christ. We are God's spiritual family. He is our father. He is the one who has brought us into being spiritually. And through being born again and adopted by him, we're brought into relation with each other as his people. We belong to that same family as all other uh, converted Christians are. So he's saying here, um, outdo one another in showing Affection, that too is uh, the, the family word, honoring one another. Be fervent, um, he's saying, in spirit. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I think it should be uh, translated there rather than a separate thing. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. 
There you can see again the two, the two opposites and the way they go together. If you don't want to be slothful in your zeal, uh, if you don't want to have uh, that sort of attitude that doesn't really care too much about things, then how do you overcome that? Well, you you be fervent in spirit. And the word fervent there literally means boiling, something that you see in a pan on the stove when it's boiling rapidly. That's what he's saying to us there. How do you come, how do you overcome being slothful in zeal? Well, you be fervent in spirit. Ask the Lord to make you fervent. Ask the Lord to give you a boiling heart. Ask the Lord to really move you inwardly in such a way that you're agitated away from being slothful in zeal, uh, from being just, uh, as they say in Gallic, you about things. And that's the opposite of what you have here in fervency of spirit and serving the Lord. And then he speaks about perseverance, firstly, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. You could summarize these really under perseverance. It's a persevering mind and, and action on the part of the Christian there as well. And he moves to being generous, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You can see how they connect together. If you're concerned to supply the needs of those who are very much in need, whether they're saints or otherwise, he, he mentions they're the saints, as he often does, because uh, this is the family he's still talking about, and our priority is to, to look to the needs of the family first, of course, without neglecting those out with. But he's saying, um, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality, which really goes along with contributing to their needs, showing hospitality. Hospitality in Paul's day was absolutely crucial because as he and others went from place to place with the gospel, as they carried the message of Jesus from place to place, they were depending on being received by those who would uh, actually look after them, whether it was for a night or two or for longer, because they lived in a dangerous world. They lived in a world when persecution of Christians was, was absolutely uh, uh, rife in most places of these large cities. And you can see that from his own writings, of course, what happened to him. And so hospitality was a means of security in many ways. It wasn't just that you cared for the needs of the person and gave them a place to sleep for the night and made sure they were safe. You were actually exercising your love for them in a way that gave them security, that provided in that way for them, showing hospitality. And he goes then on to speak about being good-willed. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. You see the way that goes together again. Uh, bless and do not curse them. So it's not just enough for us not to curse those who actually persecute us. That's good. If we don't actually curse them, that's what we're required to. But that doesn't go far enough for the apostle. He's saying not just uh, don't curse them, but bless them. Pronounce blessing and seek blessing for them. And that's going much further than just avoiding cursing them. Because that stops short of blessing them and seeking God's blessing for them. And it's, it's very difficult at times. If you were living in Ukraine tonight um, and actually... Uh, saying to Christians there, no, you should really bless those Russians, those Russian troops that come upon you. See how difficult that would be? Because very often, understandably, those who are interviewed will say, well, I just hate these Russians. And of course, the Russian soldiers are just carrying out their duties. 
um, whether they do it in a way that's acceptable or not, it's another thing. But you can see the difficulty for a Christian facing that, just as it would be in Paul's day. Yet that's what he's saying. Uh, do not uh, curse those who persecute you, but bless them. Seek God's blessing for them. Pronounce blessing towards them and upon them in the name of Christ. Seek their conversion. Seek their well-being. All that comes into it. And uh, verse 15 then, um, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. In other words, he's saying, ask God and uh, keep asking for grace so as to be empathetic or sympathetic and empathetic to people. Whether they're weeping or whether they're rejoicing, you can join with them. And your joining with them is in kind uh, so that you're able to rejoice with them if they're rejoicing properly as they should be. And if it's the opposite, if it's mourning, if it's weeping, uh, seek to weep with them too. And it doesn't mean uh, that you need to have the ability to speak into their circumstances. Many people who sit really shattered by the difficulties of death in their experience, in their families, the death of loved ones. Uh, many people sit silently. They're really trying as best they can just to believe that's what happened has really happened. And what they need from Christians like you and I, more than anything else, is to go and sit beside them and take their hand. And that's all. Because that's very often all that they're able to take in. But that's everything for them. Weep with those who weep. Just as Jesus did when he attended the, the death, the uh, incident of Lazarus's death, he went to Martha. I've mentioned this before, I'm sure. He went to Martha and he got her to speak because that's what she was like. She needed to speak. She needed to get things out. And he knew that. So he got her to speak. He asked her questions. He made a statement to her. Do you believe this? And all the way through, that was her way. That was his way of getting her to respond. There's no account at all that when he came alongside Mary, he didn't say anything to her as far as recorded anyway. He didn't get her to speak because she was a different character. What she needed more than anything else was the very presence of Jesus. That was enough. So often it is for us too. It's your presence. Your genuine, good-willed presence that makes all the difference to people in their loss and their need. And so he goes on like-minded um, and then humble, verse 16, uh, emphasizing again their humility. So correct attitude and action to one another, as well as to those out with, and also our own individual attitude and action. And he finishes by a correct attitude and action to our opponents. And it has three negative and positive combinations there again from, from verse 16 onwards, uh, where he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the humble. Never be conceited. Repay to no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, it's not retaliation, but peacemaking that God requires of us. Uh, the peacemaking of which Jesus himself spoke in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called 
sons of God or children of God. Why are they called children of God over and above the other Beatitudes? Well, because when you're making peace, you are more like your father than in anything else. Because that's what he has done. Our father in heaven has made peace for us in Christ. And when you're making peace between people who have fallen out or between yourself and somebody that's fallen out with you or you've fallen out with, making peace is the characteristic that makes you like God as far as that is concerned. And what he's saying is exactly the same. Uh, as far as it is possible, it doesn't mean that we say, well, okay, I don't really think it's possible, so I won't really bother. But it's a very opposite direction. As much as possible is really what it means. As much as possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then he says, never avenge yourselves, but give place to wrath. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. Vengeance has no place in our Christian hearts. That doesn't mean that we become soft, that we don't stand up to those who want to persecute us, or that we don't speak strongly out uh, to those who oppose the gospel um, in, in a marked way. But that's different to vengeance. Whenever something is done to you because you're a Christian, uh, when it's taken out on you, vengeance is never the response that God requires. Whatever it is, it must never be vengeance. Because he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He may never repay to the person who has abused us. He may never repay to that person in this life. And that's where people, uh, by and large, lose sight of the eternal dimensions of God and of God's vengeance. If he doesn't actually bring it out in this life, be sure of this. He'll bring it out in his final judgment. And you and I would not like to stand in the shoes of persecutors of God's people if they haven't repented by the time they face the judgment throne of Christ. It should fill us with horror and terror should make us tremble that anyone who's abused the people of God come to face God without having changed their lives. Leave it to me, says the Lord. I will repay. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What, is, what does that mean? What sort of uh, uh, situation does he describe in that? Well, it's really but pretty much following the same lines. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Don't deny him what he needs on that level. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In other words, treat him kindly. Because the best way of getting to someone's conscience is to treat them in a way they don't deserve. That's precisely what he's saying. You will heap burning coals on his head you will get through to their conscience. Maybe that'll never lead them to Christ, though we hope it will. But the fact is, you have dealt with them as God himself requires you. And it has touched their conscience. And then it's up to them to do something about it. But this is our part of it. 
Uh, you want to get their conscience moved for God to stir their conscience by your doing good. And that's how he finishes. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And again, you see there's both sides. It's not enough for us not to be overcome with evil. We need to go further than that. And we need to overcome evil by doing good, by the exercise of goodness as it flows from that renewed mind in the attitude that God has created in his people. So may God bless these thoughts on his word to us this evening. Let's con uh, conclude by singing uh, Psalm 15. Psalm number 15, uh, and we'll sing the whole psalm, page 215. Within thy tabernacle, Lord, who shall abide with thee? And in thy high and holy hill, who shall a dweller be? We'll sing that psalm, Psalm 15, to God's praise. Within thy tabernacle, Lord, who shall abide with thee? Those who are elders can please remain behind because we'll be doing the, the session.